Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Joining me today is clinical psychologist Dr Emma Hepburn. When she's not working for the NHS, Emma is the author of two fantastic books, A Toolkit for Modern Life and A Toolkit for Happiness. Her third book, A Toolkit for Your Emotions is out in January 2023. I can't actually decide if this is just a Scots Care podcast or more of a therapy session for myself. Scots Care. Hey, Emma. Hi, Marcus. It's nice to speak to you because I know we've been kind of around the houses with trying to get uh, a chat between us with COVID and then school holidays, but it's, it's great to finally chat to you. Yeah, no, we finally managed to get time despite all that, so that's good. Do you know what? It's almost fortuitous because I was thinking about you the other night. I was watching. Have you seen Belfast, the the Kenneth Branagh film? No, I haven't. No. All right, it's, it's really interesting because it's 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 a great film and it's set in 1969, and that's a few years before I was born, but not many, you know. And yes. it looks like it looks like another world. It looks like prehistoric times. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. I have to chat to him about that. And what I was thinking is that, and just because it is kind of just one generation, things have changed so much. You know, technology has changed so much. The every the the pressure we put upon ourselves has changed. The simplicity seems to have gone. Do you think I'm just getting old, or and do you think our parents <laughs> were saying that, or do you think it's true, or, an element of truth? No, I think there is a huge element of truth in that. If I think back to when I started university, I remember sending my first email and thinking this isn't going to take off <laughs> nobody said these things yeah okay how long was I and I was handwriting my essays so well maybe I'm just old too but I was handwriting essays because none of us had computers and there was no access to them and since then you know from being in my late teens to now everybody uses email it's the main way of corresponding you can't work without using email it's one of the main things factors going to impact it on your work day nowadays and technology has you know, since the mid-1990s moved on in leaps and bounds. I don't think we've ever had that increasing technology to that such an extent um, that it's now in our lives so much more. Obviously, it's impacted the Industrial Revolution, impacted on all of our lives, but in actually coming into our lives, I think that leap in the last 30 years has been phenomenal. Yeah, I, I was, it's interesting you say you remember sending your first email because I, I don't, but do you know what I do remember really clearly was discovering Twitter when it first came out and I, w- I was working for a company and it was, it was they had called it the ventures department. We had to investigate new technology. It basically paid me to sit around looking at the internet, which, you know, I thought was a job back then. Nowadays, I would bite your hand off for that. But I remember doing it and my friend who, who was also part of this department, Lars and I looking at it and going, so I say something like, okay, I'm off for a wee. 
you know, and I couldn't quite get why I wanted to spill my guts to everybody. And there was two things that came out of it. I had no idea then that it would become, in a, in a way, unhealthy. I think that everybody needs to share everything all the time. And the yeah. second thing that Lars said at that point, which must have been 2006 or something, he said to me, I don't like this. I think at one point this is going to come back and bite us all in the arse. Mm-hmm. And I think 20 years later, he's right. Isn't that interesting, though, how we looked at it before it was so integrated in our life? And now we kind of accept it. That's just part of it. But actually, if we step back from it, it is quite a weird thing, isn't it? That we are sharing all these microbites or little bits of our life on Twitter. And actually, even when we go out something and I find myself, you know, I was at Halloween walk with my kids. and I, Oh, I could take a photo of that for social media. That's bizarre, isn't it? It's it really is. strange. <laughs> Yeah, I think I saw a meme or so, or, or uh, in fact, you know, it was one of my kids had to tell me what a meme was, but it, it was like if 20 years ago you had started taking photographs of your food in a restaurant, people would have thought you were insane. Yeah, totally. Or your feet, feet along the street. You know, people are like, what are these people doing? Yeah. Well, do you know what? I think, I, I don't think things change all that much in, in some ways. I think the technology changes so things get faster. I remember when I left school, uh, left university before I had a first job, I ended up working in a photograph factory. So you remember when you used to like send away uh-huh. your spools? Yeah, and, it was, and... it was expensive but lovely because it was always a surprise what you got back. Obviously hugely disappointing when it was all blank photos and you paid for it. But yeah, absolutely remember that's, that. That's it. And I used to, I used to put the, feed the spools in and then they would get processed and all the all the photographs would go and come out and I would put them back in the, the envelope and, and send them off to the people. But and what people have taken photographs, I think technology's changed, but it's still kind of blank photos trains cats and pornography and it's just <laughs> it's just the medium by which we consume these things that's changed and the amount probably if i think of how many photos i've got on my camera compared to how many photos exist of me you know in the 80s 90s the amount of it as well has isn't it it's and it's perpetual existence in our life so you take one spool and you wouldn't think about your camera again for a while but now your camera is constantly there so i think it's a the amount and the constantness in your life, which has changed. Let's talk about your, your first book, A Toolkit for Modern Life. And what I really liked about it was it was beautifully simple. And I just wondered, did it come to you organically or did you see a need for this to come out in such an easily consumable way? Because you're actually a very academic person, but this is, it comes across in, and I, I, I don't mean this badly, it's a very non-academic book. It's very easily digestible. It's intentionally non-academic. And so I, uh, I do work for the university, but I also am a clinical psychologist by trade. And I've worked as a clinical psychologist for nearly 20 years now with lots of different people. And, you know, you can take, part of being a clinical psychologist is taking the theory and making it meaningful to people. And if you talk in academic jargony language, it's not meaningful to anybody. And well, it's meaningful to academics, but it's not meaningful to actually take and apply it in your life and use it because you're not going to think about oh, this convoluted psychological theory. So I think part of my job has always been taking this theory that the evidence suggests works um, and helps people and making it accessible for people at a point when they're feeling pretty rubbish. When you're feeling pretty rubbish, your brain is not going to want to think about lots of different things. You want information you can use as digestible. So in answer to your question, it was incredibly organic. It came from my work. So I worked um, well, I worked with lots of different groups. Probably the key groups that I worked with, which this came from, were children. Now, you're not going to 
give children lengthy words or or you know um you know give them big books to read to help them what do you do you sit and you draw pictures with them so I used to sit and draw pictures of volcanoes and you know um big brains and all these different things which you'll see kind of the evolution of into the book and um, so that was probably the first kind of part of it sitting making these concerts accessible for children you can see how the book is quite childlike and where that's developed from and actually the images are used a lot in schools which is really nice but then I moved on and when I had children I had two jobs but I couldn't sustain two jobs it was just too much with children so I stopped working with children myself and I kept on the part of neuropsychology which is basically working with people who have something that's impacting their brain so a neurological condition or a brain injury and as part of that I developed or helped develop a group for people with brain injury now that, that's lots of different things but brain injury is many many different things but again with brain injury um, you don't want to give people lengthy books to overburden people with lots of jargon you want to make it accessible so as part of this group I started drawing probably taking a lot of work from children and drawing a lot of the things that we talked about so I described them um, at one point and said you know when you're, you're totally at full or bursting point it's like a cup that starts to overflow and it just came kind of quite organically in the group. I thought, well, let's draw this as a concept. So drew up this massive, you know, um, um, what's it called? The, the flip chart um, up on the wall of a cup. And said, right, so you've got to work out where your cup is. How much capacity do you have left? You know, if you're full, you're at massive risk of, of bubbling over. And this just, people really engage with this. So they come back and they say, I was thinking about my cup last week, Emma. And I knew I was at, at the point of tipping over. So... I had to actually get my cup down before I could go and deal with something big. So people are just really engaging with the visual. And that's, uh, so I, I, yeah, these were kind of scrappy drawings on paper, NHS paper that I was drawing on the wall. And then I bought myself an iPad um, and started just thinking, oh, I could probably draw some of these a bit better and started drawing. And I was quite artistic when I was younger, but like most things, you kind of lose them when you, you go into your job mm. and you stop doing it. Um, so I started drawing these and making them a little bit more colourful, predominantly for my work, um, starting to make them a bit more accessible, a bit more fun, really, because you want people to engage it and be interested in it and, and keep their attention and also memorise it and think, oh, that's the, the cup or that's whatever it is. So I started drawing and I thought, do you know what? It's a shame for these to be sitting just used by a few people in a clinic room. So I started sharing them on social media and I was really cautious because uh, I was thinking, oh you know as a psychologist and social media do these two mix and there wasn't really I know there's loads of psychologists and lots of mental health professionals and social media at the time but in 2018 there was virtually nobody so I had nobody to kind of model this idea on and I started sharing them and I did it anonymously because I was so uncertain about it and I thought I'll just put it up but I thought I'll probably get three followers uh, my mum my dad and my husband <laughs> and none of them ever followed me so I um, didn't get them as followers but uh, it just suddenly rapidly grew and people are really engaging in it. And it was, um, you know, and there was people shared, like, Alanis Morissette shared on my drawings, which was just, you can imagine the text message um, corresponding to me and my husband about that. Alanis Morissette started following me, husband. Isn't that ironic? So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, it was like totally surreal, something I never expected. And it grew and grew. And then I also had a lot of these drawings online. Um, and again, I was drawing them from concepts that people were talking about. Um, I was drawing them from concepts I, I work with. Yeah, I was drawing things that I, I felt were meaningful to people. Sometimes it's about the current context. Obviously, I started drawing a lot during the pandemic. So I was working and um, supporting 
um, healthcare workers in a hospital during the pandemic. So it was just really things that were coming to me and things I was hearing. And it just grew and grew. And then a publisher got in touch with me and said, look, these would work really well in a book. And that's where it came from. So it kind of grew very organically. And it still surprises me that it's kind of where it is now because it's probably not something I ever thought would happen. One in four of us will experience a form of mental health illness in our lifetime. Scott's Care offers mental health supports with quick access to qualified therapists for both children and adults, bypassing NHS waiting lists. If you're a low-income Scot in London and could use the help, get in touch with us. Well, it's interesting that the first thing you talk about there is the capacity cup, because I think that must resonate with so many people because it was the first thing that jumped out on me <laughs> as well. And I wonder if one of the reasons that your book has been so successful, that first book uh, was so successful, was because in some ways in our society, we have a need for it, because I think I think the capacity cup, what that said to me was that associated with the capacity cup, I, I suffer terrible guilt if I can't do everything that society expects me to do. And I kind of wonder because we've got all, all these ways of doing things and interacting with society that it just causes more guilt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we, we live in a culture of productivity and we are constantly doing more and looking to the next thing. And we get on this kind of travelator of what's next, what's next, what's next that I must achieve. And, you know, and it's a message that's very much given to us. And that's, and we can't achieve everything. We can't do everything. And I guess it comes back to our initial conversation about media. There's so much more coming at us now that actually everything is is so much more than it ever was before. So it's just impossible. And we actually need to recognise our limited capacity. That and actually we need to also prioritise not doing and dis, and saying no and you know giving ourselves a break to actually manage our capacity and how we're feeling proactively. Because it's very easy to get on what's called the hedonic treadmill when you're just going and going and going and trying to get reach the next thing and never actually just managing um, you know, or recognising you know, where you are and what you have achieved. So absolutely, I think kind of cultural stories feed into how we're feeling and lead to guilt. And I think, like say, social media doesn't really help with that either. Do you know what I'd like to talk to you about is success. I've got three kids. I've got two boys. <laughs> Noah's 13. Rafe is nine. And Indy's four. And the boys are definitely very different from the girl. And and Noah, as an older kid, he's he's very absorbed in skateboarding and he, he's much more of a kind of we've not taught him this, but he's much more of a free spirit hippie. Mm -hmm. And so he's largely unaffected by uh, by outside influences. But Rafe tends to he spends a lot of time, well, we control it, but he spends a lot of time on screens and mm -hmm. he, he watches YouTubers and I worry about his definition of success because if I ever say to Rafe, well, this is, well, what do you think about doing this? He'll say to me, well, is there a YouTube channel and how much money can I earn from it? And I want to say to him, because, because I've been through jobs mm. where I've earned a bit more money, but I've not been terribly happy. And I, I don't want that for my kids. I, mm -hmm. I kind of want to be able to allow them to define their success as happiness rather than financial yeah. achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that comes back to kind of what society pushes, doesn't it? I mean, we measure success as a nation in terms of economic growth. So that's finance, isn't it? Yes. Rather than how satisfied we are as a nation or how happy we are or how 
you know, or how miserable we are as a measure of lack of success. So it's so interesting. I think the, the societal messages that get pushed us about success are about achievement, about academic achievement, about um, monetary achievement. And also now, I think you're tapping something really important for kids is about social media achievement, how many followers you have, um, how much um, success you have on social media. So this is kind of a myth of success. And I talk about that in my second book, saying what really is success? Because I mean, the evidence shows us that beyond, obviously, lack of money makes us unhappy. I mean, it, poverty is is awful for mental health. And we, we shouldn't say money doesn't make us happy because up to a certain point it does. And it's absolutely essential. But beyond a certain point, actually, money doesn't make us more happy. As soon as we have kind of our needs met and we can have a few nice things, you know, a huge amount of money doesn't make us any happier. And also the things that we think make us happy. So getting the, the great job or the job we always thought would be the ideal thing or getting that, that brilliant exam result also don't make us as happy as we think. So if we then pull back, what does success mean to us? Well, so success really is about those things which makes us feel good. And that's probably not the things that society tells us we should be chasing. So I think pulling success back, like just like you say, and that's why I look at, let's redefine success. What is it for you? And it's probably about tying it into what's important for you, what makes you feel good. So success for me might be, uh, you know, cooking a nice meal that day, which I don't get a chance to do, but actually I really enjoy doing. It might be actually taking some downtime. It might be connecting with friends, because those things make me much happier than an extra, you know, bit of money or actually chasing the a career um, promotion. Actually, those things that I do on a day-to-day basis make me much happier. And success is also about probably learning to fail. So it's actually dealing with bad times. It's because, you know, distress, feeling bad, feeling crappy is, is a normal part of life. So success is also getting through those really crappy times and being able to come through the other side. So I, I really think we do need to redefine success and think about what it means for us as individuals, but also what it means for us as a society. Because success is surely about having the most people getting the most benefit, the most um, well-being out of the resources we have. Uh, do you know Russell Wardrop? No, I don't know him. No, no, no he's, a, he's a businessman and he's a, a, a storyteller and he's an educator. And I spoke to him on the podcast a few weeks ago. We recorded a lovely chat and it's just something you said there. And he, because he was talking about purpose versus ambition mm-hmm. and say, and you you might have the ambition to be, and he, his example was Beyonce. You you know, you can you t- tell your kid you can be Beyonce, but not everybody can be Beyonce. Mm-hmm. And this is the danger. If you keep on saying to you, setting your kid up, you're almost setting your child up or yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. Then he went, he was talking about purpose. If you can have a purpose, mm-hmm. what was it he said? He said something about find something that you can do. You don't even have to be able to do it particularly well, but if you do it for long enough and it, and it fills your soul, you will be a happier person then, or maybe a more content oh, person. Absolutely. And, I, and that's what I talk about in the second book. You know, happiness is not just about feeling good all the time. Happiness is, is put several components to it. One of those is purpose and meaning. So what's meaningful to you? What makes you really feel kind of alive or feel like you've you've done something important and often that is about how we connect to other people and and you know what we're doing um of benefit not necessarily just other people but what we feel is of benefit to um society sometimes so what gives us meaning is usually not chasing that extra you know a few hundred pounds or chasing that 
promotion what gives us meaning is often much more about those daily things and that's what's important finding that purpose and meaning what really I call it your why what's your why what's the why of of you know living your life what really gives you that kind of sense of meaning so I absolutely agree with that and I think purpose and meaning are absolutely critical components of, of well-being and feeling good much more important than the next promotion or or more money or more likes or, or whatever it is you're chasing yes I agree I agree and and you spoke you said your second book which was a toolkit for happiness again mm-hmm. again done brilliantly simple but what I took from that was when you're talking about happiness you were, you were basically saying happiness is transient joy is an emotion so happiness kind of peaks and troughs it and, and goes away so it's not that happiness is a myth but it's maybe that happiness is not what we should be we, we shouldn't be chasing happiness because that's unachievable as a long-term emotion yeah absolutely well if we expect to feel good and feel happy all the time it's almost like you said you're setting yourself up to fail there is no such place of this nirvana of happy land we can't reach this perpetual place where we're never going to feel bad and if we chase happiness too much we then can sometimes start to think that oh i'm feeling bad i'm not actually achieving my goal so we start to beat ourselves up for those difficult emotions which isn't helpful. But also we know if we make happiness the end goal and we constantly chase it, actually it makes us ironically unhappier. So happiness is much more about kind of your day-to-day. When I just, well, what I describe as happiness is much more about your day-to-day actions and what you do on a daily basis. And it's about doing things that connect to your purpose, connect to your why, connect to your values, but also learn to deal with difficult emotions and think about how you respond to them because it's absolutely critical because they will happen, they're part of life. But also thinking about the things that bring you positive emotions as well. And I don't mean, that's not to say there's a contrast with negative emotions, but those things that make you feel good because actually we do need to do them in our life. That's not just chasing positive joy it's also about feeling calm feeling relaxed it's about feeling awe it's about feeling lots of different emotions and thinking about how we combine those into our lives in small little ways rather than waiting for it to happen yeah that's it's, that made me think what was that is it john lennon who said life is what happens when you're busy making other plans was that him that said i think it was i know the quote but i think it was so i'm not yeah. and, sure. and and you know i think i'm guilty of chasing the end goal a lot is is there something we can do on a daily basis to help us live in the here and now is there small things we can do oh i think i think there's many things that we can do i think it's kind of intentionally connecting to your why come back to that meaning and purpose on a daily basis thinking about what is it that kind of gives me that kind of you know that boost of energy what makes me feel you know like I'm really connected with things and ensuring that we're doing that in our daily life and thinking about and noticing it really that what we're doing is about integrating you know things that make you feel good on a daily basis as well so that might be just going for a walk doing connecting with somebody and making sure we're doing them because so often we wait for this big end goal and we actually put things aside as we're on this journey to this mythical end goal that actually make us happy so it's actually making sure that we integrate those tiny little things on a daily basis and it's also thinking about how we respond to our emotions generally so as emotions arise what do we do with them how do we see them how do we recognize them how do we respond to them and it's really key is that we don't push our difficult emotions aside and see them as failure because we know that actually just increases stress 
and makes us less happy longer term. So thinking about how we respond to our difficult emotions as well. So lots of ways we can do it. And I think another way, which is really important, because you talked about kind of chasing that end goal, is stopping and noticing what you have achieved. Because we're so future focused. Our brain's designed to be future focused. It's a predicting machine. But also it has a negative bias, which means that we're much more likely to pick up the negative. Now, that makes sense. Our brain is designed for survival. To survive, it needs to predict what, what's about to happen next and needs to be kind of overload its resources onto the negative. So it spots those things really quickly to help you survive. So it makes sense. It's like that. It's very helpful in many situations. But sometimes if we're constantly striving and looking at the future and always kind of thinking about the next things, we forget to pause and notice what is going well or what we have done. And that just is simple things. That's the things that, you know, for example, getting your kids to school. I mean, it might be silly to think stop and think about that, but actually if you've got three kids, that's actually quite a task to get them all ready and get them all going and get them to the right places at the right time. Or just the fact you've sat and maybe had a bit of time with your son or your daughter, you know, just recognising these things that you've done on a daily basis. And actually, you've done a pretty good job. You've achieved quite a lot and they've made you feel good. So stopping and noticing um, in the moment, but also kind of after as well, really appreciating kind of what you have done and what you, ha- you are doing that, you know, on a daily basis that is that you're doing well. So let's fight against the negative bias of our brain and actually you know, tap into those um, those things that are going well for us or we're doing well because it might actually just be that actually I went to a really tough meeting but actually I managed to get through it and I, I actually did okay getting through it. Social isolation is a growing and often unseen problem in big cities like London. Scotscare's Leather Buddies programme matches a Scotscare volunteer with a client in need of company for a weekly chat to help build back connections. If you think you're on your own in London, Scots Care can change that. Don't suffer in silence. Talk to us at info at scotscare.com. And I think there's an importance because so much of life is lived on social media. And I see, you know, colleagues and friends that I have that say, you know, I'm up, ran five miles, baked three loaves, got the kids to school, learning Sawali, you know, and... And that, that that I think that kind of constant comparison to other people's life, maybe we need to put that aside slightly just to concentrate on the little things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, our brain is also designed to compare and there's lots of kind of evolutionary mechanisms to that. So you can kind of stay part of a tribe or or, you know, compare compare yourself to how other people are doing. It's, it's an evolutionary mechanism that we naturally compare, but we're not naturally compared or designed to compare against. 50,000 data points coming at us that's just absolutely overwhelming and just it can become that you're comparing yourself against all these these what I would describe as little tiny kind of snippets of people's lives where you're not seeing the whole picture so you've got your whole film in front of you your life with all the bad bits and the good bits and you're seeing all these like highlight reels of people's lives and it's an unfair comparison. So absolutely we need to kind of rein that in. And one of the ways to rein it in, obviously, is just reducing your social media intake so you don't have those 50,000 data points constantly coming at you, which is totally overwhelming for your brain. So absolutely we need to kind of um, think about how that impacts on us. So as a, a clinical psychologist, do you think that people are born warriors and other people don't worry so much and have a more carefree attitude? Oh, it's, it's a really interesting question. It comes down to the nature-nurture debate. And um, I see it as a, it's a bit of a mix. 
Um, we have, you know, tendencies. We've, there's obviously, you know, you can't dismiss that you're, you know, you've got um, information passed on your genes that um, are, you know, have possibilities, but it's a combination of that and the environment um, that lead to kind of who you are. And there's, there's you know, not necessarily a set point. People do talk about a set point of happiness, um, but actually I see this variation and so much of your context determines how you're feeling and what you're doing. So I would say there's tendencies, but actually, and actually so much of what happens is defined by the environment and the context you're in. That's interesting. I'm a warrior, but I, you know, I didn't have a, a bad childhood, but uh, mm-hmm. I, if I don't have something to worry about, I'll, I'll find something. <laughs> you know, and I, I do tend to go down a rabbit hole of uh, worrying about work or something to the, to the point, you know, it's almost like my wife has to take me aside and slap me go, just get <laughs> into perspective, Marcus. You know? <laughs> okay. Oh, it's okay. Nothing's wrong. No one's dead. It's okay. Yeah. We have, we are different. Everybody's different in terms of how, the, you know, they operate and they function. And it, it's not, you know, and I'm absolutely saying, you know, some people have more tendency to worry. Everybody's brain functions slightly different. Um, but also there are things we can do around that. So it's not to say that's always how it's going to be or it's, it's, it's um, there's nothing you can do about it. Because obviously there are things that we can do to notice those kind of tendencies and and change them slightly. For example, I am clearly a night owl. I've always been a night owl and that doesn't work with um, with modern life. So I've got a natural tendency in terms of how I, you know, how my brain works and how my body works to be up until about two o'clock in the morning can't do that so I've had to kind of rein that in a bit still go to bed later than most people probably but that's a kind of real genetic tendency there's things I can do to adapt that there's always things you can do to change and adapt it a bit you might not be able to change it totally but there's always things we can mediate it and not you know being a warrior isn't always terrible sometimes it can help you think about things and start step back and reflect on things but it can be kind of unhelpful at times as well, obviously. So, you know, all these tendencies, not always unhelpful, but sometimes can fall into become unhelpful in the context we're in or the life we're having to lead. So we do need to kind of intervene and moderate and change. Do you, do you struggle to get up in the morning if you stay up late? Oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, an absolute nightmare in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm actually I'm speaking like sort of okay to you at 9.30 in the morning. Um, no, 9.30 is okay now. With kids, I've had to adapt a bit, but... Um, People used to joke me at nine o'clock. I was just don't talk to Emma before it starts. She'll be okay once it finishes, but just don't talk to her before it starts. I'm, a I'm not a morning person at all. So uh, I've had to adapt to around that. And I think that is the thing. It's a tendency. So I have to adapt around it as much as I can. You know what I wanted to talk to you about? Um, I wanted to, I was talking to Greg Kane of Hue and Cry. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about, he was talking about stoicism. And uh, mm-hmm. he's talking about concentrating on negative thoughts in order to accentuate positive behavior. And I, mm-hmm. I, do, I couldn't really get it into my head. And then I looked this and I've kept this on my phone here and it says nine stoic rules for a better life. And I kind of I agree with most of them until I get to one, which I wanted to ask you about. Well, this <laughs> number one is not for you. Wake up early. Number two. That's focus- definitely I know that that would just. Uh, I saw a thing on Twitter the other day which said rules for life. Get them at five a.m. and I don't usually respond to things like that. And I would say that would probably kill me within a week. So it's not a great rule for my life. Oh, I know. I bought a book by a guy called Rich Roll. It's called something like sh- Shaking or Shirking Off Middle Age and Living the Ultra Life. And I thought I need a slice of that. And it, on page one, it says throw away the coffee machine. And I just shut the book. Oh, I just no, no, no. 
No, 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 no. That's that. Oh, I'm that. not having that. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> right. So w- w- number one is wake up early. Number two, focus on effort, not results, which we've spoken about. That's good. Read every day. Brilliant. Yeah. Be strict with yourself, forgiving of others. I like that. Mm-hmm. Seek out challenges. I like that. Stay a student. Cut toxic people out of your life. I think that's really important. Uh, focus on what you can control. I, I'm not great at that. I suffer a bit from that. But this is the last one. Think about death. Oh, no, Emma, that does not work for me at all. I'm not going to think about death. I mean, I I, I think, um, I guess as a culture, we have avoidance of thinking about death. And I, and I think, again, it's one of these things that anytime you see these rules on Twitter, they're, um, you know, they don't apply to everybody. You can't make things apply to everybody. And it's just impossible. So that with that set of rules, if I live by them, if I got up early every morning, I would not function. So therefore, that set of rules do not apply to me. And I think what they probably mean by thinking about death is we tend not to, we tend to avoid it. That's not necessarily helpful. And it is helpful to kind of, you know, speak about it as a culture, not for it to be taboo. And that that I agree with, but I guess, you know, I don't want to think about death every day, to be quite honest, it's not particularly helpful for me, but I don't want it to be a taboo subject as a society. So that part I agree with about not being taboo. Um, but I want to think about my life and all the things that are in my life. So I think it's some of these examples. And I think this is what happens with social media is it's like 10 rules for or five things that now if I operate like that in a clinic room I'd be a really bad psychologist because if somebody came into my clinic room I thought I've got 10 rules for your life like (laughs) yeah okay I'm going now like yeah yeah you know you're right to go now um but you know because how I operate as a psychologist is that somebody comes into my room they're absolutely the expert in their life I'm not the expert in their life I've not lived their life they're the expert in their life I know the psychological theory um, so we take their life, we match it with the theory and where things are unhelpful for them, and we think about what can make it work. So it's it's a mutual um, work together to create what we call a formulation of what's going on for them and then work out what works. And what works will be different for everybody. And even when we think about or we kind of here's a hypothesis about what might work. We could be wrong. So we need to test that out in their life. So we take it and we say, let's try this. You know, even if we're a little bit cynical about it, because I understand cynicism about some of the things that um, psychology says work, because, uh, you know, they, but sometimes they do work, even though you're cynical about them. So let's try it. Like, the only way to find out is actually test it out and do a bit of an experiment in your life to see if it works. It might not. So that's so far removed from 10 things that will work from your mm-hmm. life that you just can't do that with people it's all all you know it's all about complexity and it's all about matching what works for you and that's where social media pressure can start to come in because you can see a post like you must get up at five o'clock then another post says you know you must rest and it starts to contradict each other and it, and actually the whole kind of advice and mental health and well-being information just start to become stressful in itself because yeah. there's so much of it and it's so contradictory and i think the whole message is you know, it's about testing out what works for you with all your kind of complexities of human, the complexity of the different contexts you work in, and also the complexity that we described you know, earlier that we're all slightly different. You know, some people are more warriors, some people are better at getting up in the morning, some people are really rubbish at like getting up in the morning. Um, so, you know, what works for me will be slightly different to what works for you. And I think that complexity can be lost in social media. It becomes, it becomes simplistic. And that's supposed to that work. You have seven things that work for you. And that's what, and I guess that's what I try to do in my book. It's like, actually, life is complex. I'm trying to capture complexity, but in simple, rather than kind of um, 
you must do this. It's, these are some things that might work, but try them out. So I'm trying to make the complexity simple, but also trying to maintain the kind of nuance that it doesn't work for everybody. We must make our own, and I talk about the happiness sandwich, we must make our own sandwich, and it's a sandwich that works for us, or we must create our own toolbox. Because and I, I say in every book, not everything will work for everybody. You know, you need to try things. And I do say you might feel a bit cynical about some of these, and that's fine. But try them out. And the only way you'll know if it works for you or not is by trying out and trying out a few times. So if it doesn't work after a few times, you know, it's not for you. Or maybe you try again at a different point when things are different in your life. So it's about making the theory simple, but maintaining that complexity that exists for all of us because our brains are different, our lives are different, we are different, and what works for us will be different. And I'm really looking forward to your new one, Toolkit for Your Emotions, which is out January 23. What are you going to cover in that one? Well, Marcus, I can tell you something very exciting that just before you this started, I got a, a ring on the door and um, the postman uh, handed me a package, which is the first time I've seen it. So I literally oh, really? haven't looked at it yet, but I've just seen it. So it's really exciting. I've got it sitting next to me. So Toolkit for Emotions focuses on the new science of emotions. And the new science of emotions very much developed in the last 10 years as our knowledge of brains has increased. And it kind of trying to put to bed some myths around emotions that I think still exist very commonly in society and trying to think about what emotions actually are and what the science tells us about what works with our emotions. And it's kind of moving away from the idea that emotions are irrational because they're not always irrational, we have them for a reason. It's moving away from the idea that they're all on the mind, because they're not, they're very clearly in the body and our context and lots of other things as well. And it's moving away from this idea of kind of, there's negative emotions we shouldn't feel and positive emotions we should be feeling to think, in what are emotions? How can you understand these? How can we respond to them? And what's beneficial? What does the science tell us is beneficial when it comes to emotions? And I have to say, the science of emotions has changed hugely since I sent that first email and when I started university. What I was taught at university about emotions is totally different to what you would be taught now because the science has changed so dramatically in 30 years. And um, so, and it's quite complex. It's all about brain um functioning and the science behind it is really quite complex so I have to say probably the most difficult book I've written trying to take something that sometimes I find hard to get my head around because it's changed so much it's moved on so much and make it simple and um so I yeah I, it's it's trying to make this new science of emotion simple and applicable in people's lives that's, that's interesting um you were saying about not only in the mind, but are you saying there's physical manifestations as well that, you know, if you are feeling emotionally stressed, that it will manifest itself in different ways physically in, well, your, in your person? Yes, kind of. But what I'm also saying is that the emotions, the labels of emotions are about how we feel in our body. So it's all about how we feel in our body. It's the feelings in our body that we label as emotions. And those feelings are created by brain predictions and lots of of what we need to do next but also those feelings are created by lots of physical things so for example illness creates a feeling in our body and then we label it's an emotion so it actually a lot of it how we feel in our body is absolutely crucial to emotions because what are we labeling as emotions well it's how we feel where do we feel it we feel it in our body so absolutely everything has a physical manifestation in the body but actually the emotions are words we use to label how we're feeling physically so it's a complex mix of um, 
language is absolutely critical to emotions because it's about labeling emotions. Emotions are labels, semantic labels to describe how we're feeling. And what we know is the more language we have around emotions to label those physical feelings, the better able we are to deal with emotions as well. So it's a really interesting mix of emotions are the labels we use, so they're semantic language, but also they are um, describing what's going on, how we're feeling. And so many things impact on how we feel, physical illness, what's going on in our lives, that we cannot, you know, we can't separate these things. So what I do in the book is I, I write a recipe for emotions. And it's actually a brain making emotions, mixing all these things together. And it's the components that make up emotions. And it's it's physical feelings, what's actually going on in our body. It's um, the labels, it's the context, our past, because it's our brain predictions. There's lots of different things that create emotions. And that... Uh, and what I talk about in the book as well is that actually I've had to shift my understanding of emotions hugely in the last, you know, it, since in, during my career as a clinical psychologist. And actually, it's taken me a little while to get my head around that because it's been such a massive shift for me to think about what emotions actually are. Because it seems so simple, but once you start to think, what are emotions? It's actually a really quite hard um, question to answer. Toolkit for your emotions is out January 23, 2023. Emma, yeah. thank you for joining me on the Scots Care podcast today. It's been brilliant chatting to you. Oh, it's been great chatting to you, Marcus. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It could be Sunday football or Monday piano lessons. Whatever a child wants to learn after school hours, Scots Care has grants to help cover costs. Parents can't always find the funds for those extracurricular pursuits, but there's a good chance Scots Care can. 